Support for the show comes from Atlassian. With a new story about AI coming out seemingly every day, it can be hard to know what it all means for you and your job. Atlassian thinks there's a lot to be excited about in the AI-powered future. Even right now, Atlassian's AI-powered software can help you boost productivity by eliminating menial tasks, generating insights, and helping you find information about projects, policies, and processes. No matter if you're a team of two or two million, or if you're around the corner or on another continent, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for the show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync, so even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account so ambitious companies have the precision control and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway. Scott, you're in Iceland. You're in Iceland. I am, Kara. Yeah. How I is it? I'm in Iceland. Is it icy? No, there's uh, no ice. No icy in Iceland <laughs> and no green in Greenland. But go ahead. Uh, have you been to Iceland? No, I have not, but Amanda has. But go ahead. Do you like uh, it? It's oh, it's a stunning country. You feel yeah. as if you're in one giant Game of Thrones scene. Yeah. I yeah. mean it just every valley you come over, it's another natural wonder. The people are friendly. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I love it here. I've been here several times and I'm here with my boys and every time I'm here it cements a how beautiful it is. B how important it is to spend time with your kids and see how much I hate the outdoors. It's like uh, just. <laughs> so you're in a hotel room. We finally to got to spend some time indoors yesterday and watch oh, the good. final of the Euro Cup. Good. But anyways, I'm in Iceland. Good, Happy to be good, here. fantastic. Well, I am here yeah. in New York City. I'm sorry I was a little late today. I was getting some food for mm-hmm. Louis Swisher. You were late down in, in Little Italy, and I the subway is the first time I've been on a subway in uh, in in two years, I think, or a year and a half at least. Um, it was interesting. It's, it was it was a really it's weird to be back to sort of normalish. I guess I would say that. Mm-hmm. Everyone's wearing masks here still in yeah. New York. Um, so let's go through a couple of things very quickly. Yep. Uh, Richard Branson yep. and uh, five crewmates from this Virgin Galactic Space Tourism Company successfully made it to and from space ahead of Jeff Bezos' mm-hmm. July 20th departure on Blue Origin. It got up 54 miles, um, three or four minutes of weightlessness, and uh, Blue Origin is going to go 66 miles. So any mm-hmm. thoughts? He came back down safely, Richard Branson. Um, I, I've been trying to figure out why I find this whole thing so gross. And yeah, I'm like, is you it really I'm do. jealous of these guys? Is it no. because, you know, it, it's not going to do good for the world? I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what is it about this that bothers me so much. And I think it comes down to, first off, there was a space race. Yuri Gagarin and Shepard. Yeah. Was it Andrew Shepard? Um, so that was a space race. Alan uh, a woman who doesn't get a lot of uh, doesn't get a lot of attention is the first woman in, in space, uh, Valentina Tereshkova. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people accomplished the same or more sixty years ago. Yeah. Yes, and, they did. So you think and, this is kind of just a like a ridiculous well, I thing think it by reflects something. Men. I think it, uh, quite frankly, I just think it reflects something unhealthy, and that is, okay, we've had the first Japanese citizen in space, we've had the first woman in space, we've had the first teacher in space, but we've decided that no, we need a race. It's they call it a race. A mm-hmm. race gets segmented by nationality, sometimes by weight class, yeah, sometimes by country, and we've decided no, a distinct cohort we should track with 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 awe is 
billionaires. Yeah, it, it does feel <laughs> a little like, untoward. But at the same time, you know, the idea that we should be a space-faring civilization, I'm not against that idea at all, because then I'd be the person who was standing on the shore in Spain saying, what is that Columbus guy up to, right? You know, I mean, mm-hmm, you just don't want to mm-hmm. be that person or, you know, someone on the beach at uh, uh, at Kitty Hawk and saying, oh, it only got two feet It'll off never the ground. Work. <laughs> no, well, two feet? What's that? What's, what the heck is yeah. that? And then I would go back to my, you know, large weird bicycle and dr- drive away. I just, you want to be sort of leaning forward into exploration. I always do. But at the same Agreed. time, this version, you know, maybe it felt like that back in the, in the, not in the, in the yeah, old exploration. Yeah, but it, should, it shouldn't be scientific exploration, not yes. what I'll call space yes. tourism yes. bullshit, where the day after is successful, yeah. and congratulations, they did it successfully. They didn't get quite to the Carmen line. They didn't do anything Chuck Yeager didn't do 50 years right. ago yep. Yep. with yep. cooler uniforms. Yep, yep. Uh, and Chuck Yeager what do you is know? cool. What do you know, Kara? What? 18 hours Ad? after the successful launch? They announced a $500 million stock issuance. Oh, By the yeah. way, stock's off 15% today. Yeah, yeah. I just find, uh, it's like, okay, why why have we decided yeah, billionaires PR. in space is some sort of human victory? Yeah, I would I agree. I, don't I would get agree. It. All right, well, here we go. But speaking of which, there's a continued momentum for the global minimum corporate tax rate of 15% over the mm-hmm. weekend. Leaders in the 20 of the largest top uh, economies endorsed a proposal that would impose new taxes on large, profitable multinational corporations. This comes after more than 130 countries approved it earlier this month. So, you know, they can go as long as they pay their taxes, I guess. Uh-huh. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This it, is a great it, thing. It's a, this is a great thing. Global yeah. cooperation. Yeah, um, we, we've. I, I feel like we've kind of killed this story. I love. I love us uh, getting together. I can't wait till we turn finally set our sights on Ireland and say, "Look, Ireland." <laughs> Look, Ireland. <laughs> You're charming. Playing or we're going to put charming you out of as business. you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> as much fun as you are. <laughs> you know, right. it is true. I think this is a really big move. A lot of these, uh, there's, we're going to be talking later with uh, authors of the book on Facebook. And, they, uh, you know, the, the stuff that's happening in Washington suddenly is feels very cooperative or more cooperative, even though, it does. you know, yeah. if you watch CPAC this weekend, you, you literally hate the human race. Um, but in any case, um, it, it's a really interesting time. So we'll see what happens. So we're going to start now with the big story, of course, which is related. President Joe Biden signed a broad executive order aimed at stirring competition and limiting corporate dominance. The White House is targeting sectors beyond big tech, although big tech is certainly in its crosshairs. The administration wants to go after industries including agriculture, healthcare, shipping, and transportation. The order comes after months of negotiations between White House officials, the DOG, and the FTC. Uh, Tim Wu, who serves as Biden's uh, aide for technology and competition policy in the White House, uh, National Economic Council, was a key player, which means it was a lot thought about tech, of course. Um, It also deals with net neutrality rules um, and uh, whether there's going to be successful antitrust efforts and how quickly government agencies push to implement policies which are likely to face court challenges, as we talked about. What do you think of this? This was a stunning piece of executive order after years of Trump dodo dodo executive orders, which were badly written and full of mistakes. This was really quite sweeping. What What do you think? As absolutely uninspiring as the billionaire space race is, mm-hmm. I find this really moving. And that is the son of a British-Canadian immunologist and a Taiwanese independence activist who goes to law school, Tim Wu, is teaching at law school, mm-hmm. becomes the, the the premier thought leader on antitrust, is, is drafted into the administration. And literally six weeks later, if you go back to the podcast, The, the Pivot, where we mm-hmm. interview Tim Wu— yeah. He basically laid this out yeah, word did, by indeed. word. He said, when we asked him about big tech, you know, us, me blathering on him, yeah. I'll break up big tech. And he goes, Scott, it's not just big tech. It's big ag. It's yeah. big health. Senator it's Klobuchar talked about us too. Remember? She was talking about caskets and things like that. 
But I mean, this is literally Tim Wu putting on a. I mean, this guy has gone gangster. Mm-hmm. The, I read this thing and I'm like, oh my god! It. I think it's just inspiring that we had, we draft these incredibly impressive people into the government, and within six six weeks, they can be outlining such incredibly well, impactful legislation. They had this ready. They were get, they, 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 the good thing about the Obama administration, I mean, excuse me, the Biden administration is yep. they um, they got things ready. They got, you know what I mean? I think Tim has been thinking about this for a very long time, along with a lot of people, and they've just been waiting yep. for the opportunity. But it's quite, it's really, uh, it's, it's across the board, it's quite breathtaking in its scope. So it, what pushbacks do you see coming, of course? Because that's the inevitable thing is how they do it. These I things, see. they soar up and then, you know, they people take a take a shotgun to it and, and they I soar back down. housing price in the D.C. area continue to skyrocket because every lawyer in America is going to get, every decent law firm in America is going to be working for one of these industries. This is really smart because instead of this becoming an argument around whether tech is good or bad, and there is an idolatry of technology, it's whether um, competition is good or bad. And the majority yeah. of Americans will come down on the side of competition is going to say, well, they're not going to, they're smart to broaden the argument from yeah. big tech and trying Very to decide smart. whether you like Amazon because the majority of consumers like Amazon to whether or not, you know what, one manufacturer manufactures oh, okay. 70% of all chicken and your chicken prices are too high. Or, and a study just or came healthcare, out, pharma is another big that's area. That's right. And a study just came out saying that a lack of competition in the U.S. costs every U.S. household an additional $5,000 a year because they have too much pricing power. Yeah, yeah. So this is, like this every Everything, really? Like everything, I just think people in the Biden administration, they're very smart, thoughtful, you know, shrewd people. Yeah, uh, but, so you know, tech I, is still going to be going to be it. the sharp end of the stick. Tech is yeah, going to be the place it's going to go first because I think this is something most people agree on. We'll see how far it gets and whether things get pushed back in courts, as we've talked about over and over again. But it's certainly, it certainly was a breathtaking move, and especially when they're in the middle of the infrastructure bill at the same time. The, the, the amount yep. of uh, surface area this group has is really interesting, and I think they've just— You they, love they, that term, surface, surface area. area yes. You love that term. That's because I'm a general. That's your gestalt. That's my gestalt. The gestalt of your oh, surface like, area. Like, you don't have words, but— Boom, etc. Yeah, Chipotle, them. penis, things I love like that. Them. That's uh, right. <laughs> at least I pick a better. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Coming in hot. Kara Swisher. <laughs> I was hot in the subway. It was sweaty. There I was go. carrying prosciutto for a long time for my you son. You on the subway? Listen like to me. That. I have not been in the subway for a they're long mas- time. Yeah, that felt pretty good. They're masking. They're masking they in the subway. Everyone's masking the subway. Yeah. It was, but it was hot. It's a hot yeah. day here in New York. Anyway. Um, let's go on a quick break, and we'll be back to talk okay. about the regulations coming out of China and a friend of Pivots with New York Times journalist Shira Frankel and uh, Cecilia Kong uh, to hear about their new book, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. One of our customers who produces pizza at a very large scale all across the world. Believe it or not, they use AI to review the quality of the pizzas that are created. That goes through a workflow that scans the images of the pizzas and makes sure they visually look like what they should. So it's pretty cool. That's Sharif Mansour, Atlassian's head of AI. Sharif thinks there's a lot for companies to be excited about on the AI-generated horizon, spanning everything from making pizza to producing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. There'll be far more jobs created on the other side of this revolution. Instead of a world of less, Sharif envisions an AI-powered world of more. In everyone's day job, they're moving from doing the thing to often being an architect of the thing. 
it unleashes the potential of every human. And I think we can go from a world where few people have access to a high level of intelligence to a lot more people having access to this information. AI is really giving everyone on the planet more resources to do great things. And I'm very optimistic about that opportunity that lies ahead. Transform teamwork with the power of AI-human collaboration. Start using Atlassian Intelligence for your Atlassian products like Jira and Confluence now. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, Scott, we're back. China, again, we talked about this briefly last week, is cracking down on tech and calling for data-rich companies to undergo security reviews for listing overseas earlier this month, just two days after Didi, the Chinese uh, ride-hailing service, uh, IPO, Chinese regulators announced an investigation of data security concerns and did all kinds of manner of things to slow them down. Uh, the goal of the investigation was, quote, to protect the national security and public interest. As a Monday bite dance, the Chinese company that owns TikTok announced that it's putting off its IPO intentions because of the country's heightened attention on data security risk. This is there, among other things, location, data, things, what people are uploading, this and that. And it especially worries about it being leaked to the U.S., to U.S. government people. In addition to this, Chinese Ministry of Industry and Tech, Information Technology released a three-year plan draft uh, to develop the country's cybersecurity injury, saying the sector may be worth roughly $40 billion by 2023. Um, so anyway, it's a big crackdown, according to now Ferguson's reporting. There are currently 244 U.S.-listed uh, Chinese firms with total market capitalization around $1.8 trillion. That's the equivalent around hmm. 4% of the capitalization of the U.S. stock market. What what do you think's going on here? I've just written a column about this, but it's not out yet. But tell me what you think. So uh, there's there's what I think is going on and then what I think the opportunity is. Uh, I would rather you, you take what you think is going on and I'll talk about what I think the opportunity is. Well, you know, obviously we talked about this a little last week. There's the issues around whether you're an investor and your investment in China, which has always been difficult for U.S. Mm-hmm. companies to get in there, period, and then difficult for U.S. investors. But they've been in there pretty, pretty uh, and at certain companies like Apple have real exposure in China. So there's many, not mm-hmm. not Facebook, not Google, but some others in tech. Um, I think this, this idea, as we've talked about, it. It's sort of as if you took Josh Hawley and Amy Klobuchar and gave them unlimited power and made them insane, kind of. And mm-hmm. I think it's really they've just decided that these that these companies are are they're not going to be more powerful than the, than the government. They did the same thing with Bitcoin. Uh, they've, as you said, I think quite intelligently that they were they saw what's happening here and they're not going to let it happen there in China, which is a much more autocratic uh, uh, thing. And the last thing is that uh, autocracy is really important to this company to keep it under this country to keep it under control. And it, one, I think it was some enormous amount of money spent on an internal security within China. They have to keep a lid on that con- country. And so the government mm-hmm. has to keep the lid on and they're not going to gonna, you know, let tech companies have the power over that they feel they should have to be running this company, country. So I keep saying company. It's so interesting. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, you want to talk about people whose hair is on fire right now is it, there are so many venture capital firms that are worried that they've invested literally billions in Chinese mm-hmm. companies that yeah, are trapped because, because there's a chill around the, the prospects of any Chinese company going public on U.S. exchanges. It's like, okay, is that debt equity? How do I get that? How do I get that money out? How do I monetize it? 
I think this is a, an incredible opportunity uh, as, as an investor. And yeah. I, I oh, went through for our predictions episode. Oh. For our predictions episode, I went through all the stocks we've talked about, and I found five stocks uh, that I've recommended over the last year. I found Restoration Hardware, Sonos, um, Twitter, uh, Alibaba and Peloton. Mm -hmm. And four of the five are way up. The only one that's down is Alibaba. And if you look at Alibaba. Yeah, they've sidelined uh, Jack Ma for those who, who runs that. But go ahead. But uh, Alibaba in the last 24 months, its revenue is up 144% and has much higher margins than Amazon because it, it relies more on its third-party marketplace. Its cloud business is up 34%. It has a, an incredibly robust payment. Yep. Uh, Amazon's up 58% their top line revenue. And get this, Amazon stock has doubled and Alibaba's is up 26%, resulting in a PE ratio of Amazon at 60 and a PE 4 PE ratio of Alibaba at 20. I think Alibaba you know just looks incredible. Can I ask oh, you a on. question? Let me go. Go ahead. Let go me ahead. go. What? It, it's incredibly cheap. And it's all around this one question. And that is, do the Chinese, is this, okay, they've they've gotten angry, they've, they've punish the kid, the kid has learned its lesson, and now everything's fine, or is this a new China? And I think it's the former, because I don't think China can meet its ambitions around sustaining a middle class and the economic growth it needs to without supporting its global champions. And these are its global champions. So I, I, I actually think this is an incredible buying opportunity. Interesting that you said that because last night, what did I do? Text you and ask you from stock opportunities because I'm testing some apps and you said, oh, buy, yeah, that's right. buy, <laughs> buy low and sell high. That is the only tip you gave me. And now you're giving a tip right here, just quite freely to the people. Just well, uh, if you look at Ali, I mean, I, I just look at Ali. I don't and yeah. disclosure, I don't own any Alibaba. But the the question is, the geopolitical risk here is so s severe and shocking. It is indeed that the market is running for it. But if you look at Alibaba just next to Amazon on a valuation mm -hmm. level, Alibaba is basically Amazon for seventy to eighty percent off. All right, what else? In terms what else? Of the stock. What else in terms of opportunity then? So Alibaba and the others, well, even though they're sort of under the scrutiny of. Uh, I would. I, I hate ride hailing, um, mm -hmm. but there's a ton of great coming. There's Tencent, I mean, everything, every major internet company in China has experienced this chill. And I just can't imagine this. I, I think this is literally historically, we have a precedent for this. And it's what happened in Saudi Arabia when they sat everyone down and said, just FYI, we're in charge. And right. everyone said, okay. And they left and got back to some sense of normalcy. I can't imagine China's going to decide to prohibit their internet companies from going global. I can't imagine they're not going to decide to let they're, these companies access the equity markets in the U.S. Yeah. I, I think they've made their point. I think they've made it very, uh, a very pointed point here. But yeah. I can't imagine they're, they've decided, all right, we're going to go inward and start kneecapping our best companies. No, you're correct. You and think? I, think, I, th I think you're right. I think this, they've said they, we're in charge here is the kind of thing they're doing. Right. And so the, the, this this report by the cyber, about the cybersecurity industry, and of course, the U.S. has been racked by ransomware attacks across the globe by the way, not just in the U.S. And I think they've, they've decided this is a really important area for them to protect their country and at the same time to dominate. And that's dangerous for our country. We really do need to be out front of cybersecurity, period, period. You know, because mm -hmm. with, with China, with the facial recognition and everything else, this is not a country I want to be 
excelling in cybersecurity over our capabilities. And that's my mm-hmm. nervousness. And I think this is they do. They do these planning draft release things, and we, we've got to have one. We've got some very smart people in the U.S. government, like uh, Ann Newberger and many others working on these things, but they're putting out fires, you know, very, very mm-hmm. severe cybersecurity fires. So this is a, that's a really smart thing. That's a very, that's Alibaba, you're right. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see wh- how, when you first see Jack Ma, uh, you know, reappear, that'll be, I'd love mm-hmm. to talk to him. He's, but you'll see, I'd oh, love to see his move. He's not going to say anything. He used to. He used to say a lot. Like all of them mm, did. So did the DD, the, the DD, Gene Liu, and they all did. I've, you know, they when you were. you disappeared for two weeks, I think you come yes. out with a different view of the world. I would <laughs> agree. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see. He will emerge, but we'll see how he emerges, and that'll be interesting. Mm. Okay, Scott, next up, let's bring on our friends of Pivot. Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong are journalists at the New York Times and co-authors of An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, which is out this week. You may have heard of it. There's a huge excerpt in the Times and everybody is talking about it. Shira covers cybersecurity and Cecilia covers uh, technology and regulatory policy. Welcome to Pivot. Thanks for having us. We're excited to have you here. Scott is in Iceland, as, I, as we've said before, um, but he will have lots and lots of questions. But first, I'd love you to—we um, want to walk us through the book to start with, but why don't you read a section to get us all prepped? And I think you picked the section I okay. would agree with. So this is a chapter called Company Over Country. Oh, fuck. How did we miss this? Zuckerberg asks, looking around at the somber faces in the aquarium. In silence, the group of nearly a dozen executives stared at Alex Stamos, hoping he had the answer. Stamos, clutching his knees as he perched on the end and the end of Zuckerberg's couch, was perspiring in his merino wool sweater. It was the morning of December 6, 2016, and the group had gathered to hear a briefing by Stamos outlining everything the Facebook security team knew about Russian meddling on the platform. Due to security concerns, Stamos had not emailed his findings to the attendees ahead of time. Instead, he printed out handouts for each person in the room. We assess, the summary read, with moderate to high confidence that Russian state-sponsored actors were using are using Facebook in an attempt to influence the broader political discourse via the deliberate spread of questionable news articles, the spread of information from data breaches intended to discredit and actively engage with journalists to spread said stolen information. Okay. So, oh, fuck, how did they miss it? Because a lot of people did notice these things going on. I remember having very vividly a conversation with Sheryl Sandberg about the issues. Um, and and there were, Hillary Clinton was depicted as a lizard person on Facebook and my relatives reads and stuff like that in their feeds. So tell me, each of you, uh, first starting with you, Cecilia, how did they miss it? Well, in fact, the security team had been had been warning them for some time, and they found out some of this information much earlier than had been reported. And we interestingly had the same experience, um, Shira and myself, when we were talking to Facebook at the time, they were really downplaying what was happening. They will say that they were looking for conventional sort of cybersecurity problems at the time, mm-hmm. like phishing attempts, hacking in the most conventional ways, and they weren't looking for foreign interference. But Shira can talk a little bit about how much they actually knew um, so much earlier on than previously disclosed. 
the reports were there. Mm -hmm. The security team had been filing reports. They had been sending them up the chain. They didn't miss it. They just didn't look. Mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg himself was just not very interested in what the security team was doing. Had he asked at any point for an update, he would have been told, yes, we are seeing Russian activity on the platform. We are seeing things that are concerning to us. And the Russians are, in fact, getting ready to do something ahead of the elections. Now, one of the things he said at one of the interviews with David Kirkpatrick, I think, was that nothing, there was no, I forget the date of that, but he was sort of saying there was zero. I think zero is the word he used. And I recall writing them saying, how do you know this? What Do you have statistics? Can you give them to reporters? How do you know the number zero? So talk about why they were sort of actively pushing against it for a while. You know, in the days right after the election, when it really came out, Facebook understood that Trump had won. They understood mm-hmm. that there was going to be a backlash against them as a company. Mark mm-hmm. Zuckerberg asked his own executives to come up with statistics for him. And he said, you know, we know it's tiny. It's got to be less than 1%. Whatever right. fake news, conspiracies, it must be less than 1%. Right. And they couldn't because they weren't even quantifying it at the time. Right. They're running in and out of conference rooms and they're going back to him and they're saying, look, even if we tell the public it's 0.5 percent, we're talking about millions right. of pieces of information. Right. It's not going to go over well with the public that we missed even that. Right. And not just that, but they how did they come up with a number? I was like, don't come up with a number if you don't know it, if you don't actively know it and know exactly what it is. So, uh, Scott, question? Uh, sure. First off, Cecilia and Sherrick, congratulations. I'm seeing this everywhere. You've pulled off what every author wants, and that's regardless of the content. Everyone wants your book. Um, and I'm sure it's fantastic, but you know they pay you to market the thing, not to write it, and you're earning your money. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, Thank you. Look, I, 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 I'm famous for bringing all these questions back to me. I wrote a book on big tech, and it started out as a love letter. And it ended in a, as a cautionary tale as I got to know these folks. I would just love to know how your view of Facebook and specifically of the leadership evolved or didn't uh, through the course of writing this book. You know, in, there was a lot that surprised us in this process. And we discovered a lot about Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg through the process. And one thing that really should not have surprised us, but that we really were able to get quite in detail, was how important Sheryl Sandberg was to really creating this business model of behavioral advertising and growing it and scaling it and how integral she was to the success of Facebook and how that partnership for so many years was such a um, a sort of yin and yang, if you will, where they needed each other, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, and how the relationship, its I hate to say it, but it's kind of like a marriage. It's mm-hmm. really evolved and how as Mark Zuckerberg took more control of the company and the aspects of the business that he previously didn't care that much about, yeah, Yeah. that um, their relationship changed. Um, So we got up really close to the executives and talking to people who are close to them as well. And I think it, in some ways we found that they are very human, mm-hmm. but they also displayed quite a pattern of ignoring warnings, of being very concerned about their PR message and not fixing necessarily problems that they were warned about. So in a lot of ways, we've, we discovered and were surprised to see that patterns was really a big theme in this book and the patterns of this leadership. Sure. You've both written books, so you mm-hmm. know, you go into writing a book and you're like, I'm going to figure out the deeper thought process. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find what the real thing was that was motivating them and uncover all that. And as a writer, it's it was startling to both of us to find how ad hoc so many of these decisions oh, yeah. were. You want to think that Facebook, now a trillion dollar company, has got some really sophisticated, nuanced thinking behind every decision they make. And, and no. They don't. No, it's. I don't think they do. <laughs> no, and, and that's what our book shows. And yeah. you know, four hundred interviews later, you know, four hundred people, yeah. multiple interviews with many of them. 
They don't. So why why is that from a from a perspective? Because this is very serious business, and one of the things that they tended to do in I think in all our experience is downplay everything and call you whiny, annoying. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's a really interesting. And you just mentioned focus on the press, like focus on not just press but PR and how it looks. Can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of writing a book like this when there's so much written about this company and a lot of it is out there and some of it some of it is unfair, very little I think, but a lot some of it some of it is you know used to be sort of slatheringly positive about it. Um, and I, I'd love to know how you think about how you cover them fairly and what you think about the kind of things they should be focusing on o- over PR. There's this perception in Facebook, I think, mm-hmm. that we only spoke to people that are disenfranchised or who left the company or disgruntled or whatever. We didn't. I mm-hmm. mean, I'd say the majority of those people that we spoke to still work at Facebook and love Facebook. Mm-hmm. And those were the people we wanted to hear from most because these were people that were speaking to us, not from a point of view of of disgruntlement or, or anger, but you know, sadness a lot of the times. They mm-hmm. wanted to make the company better. They were disappointed in something they themselves had done or something they had seen with their own eyes. I had multiple people who in interviews said, well, God, this feels like therapy. Mm-hmm. This feels oh. like I can finally get off my chest mm-hmm. what I've been feeling and what I've been thinking and the things that have bothered me. And I hope my own executives read this book because I don't know that they've fully come to terms with what we did and the mistakes we made. So can I ask a question? And then Scott can jump in because this is something he and I argue about. I mm-hmm. often say Mark gets most of the responsibility. Now, you mentioned and Cheryl did build it, and Cheryl worked at Google, is where she came from. Um, and she, they, before Cheryl, there was a series of men that Mark kept leaving. If you want to keep the marriage thing going, um, and and then he settled on Cheryl, and that became a really important relationship. I feel like, as much as she deserves the blame here, he deserves the most blame. And Scott and I go back and forth, but he talks about that. We, he and I talk about that a lot. When you think about that, talk about the structure of. Who, not who's to blame particularly, but who is the one that's created the most problem here in terms of solving problems? I mean, it, this should be no surprise to people who fought like yourself, who have followed and, and Scott, who have followed Facebook closely. Mark is in control. Mm-hmm. He is absolutely the king of the castle there. Mm-hmm. And our reporting only confirmed that even more and with, with really great detail that when it came to really tough decisions, like after Mark said on your podcast— mm-hmm that oh, Holocaust yeah. denial should be accepted, um, that that really, really upset Cheryl. And mm-hmm. there is little that she could do. It actually showed the limits of not just her power, but anyone else's influence within the company. She could leave. She could leave, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So if anything, like I, we think that her story is much more complicated and mm-hmm. we see an evolution of her as a, as a business leader and her power waning towards the end. Um, but more importantly, we see Mark seizing more control and more recently, even more control. So just going with the marriage metaphor, I, I find, based on what I know, and I want you to push back, that these two, as a husband and wife, are less menacing than Woody Harrelson or Juliet Lewis in Natural Born Killers. <laughs> that we have... <laughs> And let's just talk about him. I'll put forward a thesis and you tell me, you, you nullify or validate it. Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous person in the world. Your thoughts? If power equals danger, then there may be truth to what you said. Mark Zuckerberg is one of the most powerful people in the world because he's created a company in which there's no real oversight of his power. There's no oversight of his control. Yeah. 
It's all at his will and his discretion. And rather than as he ages and matures, perhaps seeing that that's not wise, that Mm -hmm. in life we all need checks and balances. We all need someone who can tell us, hey, you really messed that up. You're not qualified to make Mm -hmm. a decision on this thing because you're not a thought leader in it and you're not an expert in it. And this is a time to bring in someone else who is. Rather than that, as we document, you know, in 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 our book, he becomes a wartime leader. He Mm -hmm. seizes more Mm -hmm. control. Yeah, he's obsessed with a godfather. He I've, is. I've had yes. discussions with him about it. Oh, you have? Yeah, that's interesting. To be obsessed with the Godfather, but it's also <laughs> good movie. A movie, Mark. But I, 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 <laughs> it's I a fictional pre- movie. Go ahead. I want to press you on that point. I, it, it, I, it's obvious that it's an incredibly powerful platform. I'm arguing that a sociopath, the wrong person, is running this very powerful platform. Did oh. you find that, or am I, <laughs> am I being incendiary and not thoughtful? I don't know if he, well, you know what we're seeing? We're seeing, we have watched, all of us have watched Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. grown up, grow up in front of our eyes mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. An, somebody in their early 20s who is to somebody who is now not a young guy anymore. No. He's in his, you know, late 30s. And we are all just watching him make ad hoc decisions. We're watching him grow up and figure out the world mm-hmm. in front of our eyes. That could be dangerous. I think people within our book would say that, and they have said that. He has, there's nobody on the board who really holds him to account. No. There's or nobody, exactly, there's nobody in government that really necessarily holds him to account. There is no regulation, regulatory pressure on the company right now as well. So mm-hmm. there is, and I know we'll get to that as well. But as far as who he is, we're watching a boy grow up into a man who's making huge decisions on the exchange of information. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that was my first column for the Times, is the expense of education of Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. And I, I didn't mean for his expense. It was at our expense, which I is mean, interesting. I, I wonder whether a big problem here isn't just the entire Silicon Valley ethos, mm-hmm. which is the founder is king and mm-hmm. worship the founder. Mm-hmm. And he has, you know, he came to Silicon Valley in his early 20s, and he mm-hmm. was immediately told that he was a boy wonder and a genius. And no one really tells him otherwise to this day. He is surrounded by people who fawn over him and his mm-hmm. inner circle. Well, is, talk about that. Talk about the inner circle, because yeah. it's really very... One of the things they we had um, Cheryl and uh, Shrep on stage, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mike Shrepshire, and he they were b- bragging about we've been together ten years, and I said I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that's a bad thing. I said you need irritants in the system to create yeah. mm-hmm. good quality, but they celebrated it that they know each other so well and they're pals and they socialize. And I was they like, they vacation they together, vacation together. They send their yeah. kids to the same summer camps yeah. together. So what? Talk about that. Who is in this circle now? Yeah, I mean, isn't it unusual even in Silicon Valley? to have two people there for more than a decade in the top two positions. I, mean, yes. I think in many companies you see but the more CEOs. Than that. There's some people you don't know beyond that. Exactly. There is Chris Cox who mm-hmm. has who left for a little while and came back. There mm-hmm. is Andrew Bosworth. He is a very trusted ally Boss. of Mark Zuckerberg. Um, there are there is Shrep, Mike Michael Schreffer, who is the CTO mm-hmm. and he's been there for a long time. Justin Ofsovsky, who's in head of advertising oh, business. Yeah. And there's there are some people who have left recently, like David Fisher, who was in charge of ads, as well as Carolyn Everett. Google. Also from Google. Mm-hmm. That's another thing to add. So that's just on Mark's side that I was, let's take out David Fisher. The other people who I just mentioned are all on Mark's side of the business, the Mark team, let's call them. Then Team Cheryl are people who, as we as well known, are known as friends of Cheryl Sandberg, Fosses. There includes Mar- Marnie Levine, mm-hmm. who has a very similar resume to Cheryl coming from Washington, working for mm-hmm. Larry Summers as well in the Obama administration. And she is surrounded by, um, she was by Carolyn Everson and David Fisher until recently. Mm-hmm. And um, Elliot Schrag. And Elliot Schrag, mm-hmm. who until 2000, and I guess he eventually left in 2019, but he announced his retirement in 2018. 
had been a very, very close lieutenant and advisor. Cheryl also has what's known as all these, I think people call them her little cabinet that surrounds her, people Mm -hmm. who are paid from the outside, who have a lot of political expertise, who give her advice. They've all created kind of like one ad executive described, exactly, courts. You know, they're in these, one ad executive described it as like these hermetically sealed boxes of, you know, of agreement um, of the people that they surround themselves with. I would also mention that they all are very similar in background, demographics, Mm -hmm. and experience. Mm -hmm. Um, To Scott's question about Mark, one thing that I think is really important to understand is he's not lived a lot of life outside of Facebook. He went from Dobbs Ferry, Upper Westchester County, to Exeter, to Harvard for a few years, to Silicon Valley, to funding. And not a lot of life experience. And he runs a global platform. And I think that that is, to your question about danger, is what a lot of people find dangerous, is that yeah. he doesn't have a real sort of natural impulse to think about. Well, he about. doesn't have the experience. He doesn't have the education. When he was giving that famous speech at Georgetown, if you, which he's yes. now gone back on, I literally almost ran into the stage and said, stop, I need to explain the First Amendment to you, and then you can continue, sir. It was kind of fascinating, and everyone was sort of lapping it up, which is interesting. So let's talk about, speaking of Washington, the regulatory environment for, for what's happening now. Now, since you were writing this book, and it must have been like a moving target, oh like God. a crazy moving yes. target, right? So the Trump <laughs> decision. Talk a little bit about, that was fascinating because they tried to push it off, which is what the thing they tend to do is uh, try to be, irres- take away responsibility from themselves and push it on to someone else. The but Facebook board, which we call the UN, um, pushed it back at them. Yeah. And yeah. then, so talk about that a little bit. It was a really smart move on the part of the Facebook board. Mm-hmm. It was the equivalent of the Supreme Court saying, how do you want us to decide a case when you haven't given us laws, when you mm-hmm. haven't even, you know, mm-hmm. formed the foundation of an understanding on which we can make a decision? The Facebook oversight board said, we're not going to be your fig leaf. We're not going to make a decision for you. You have to go back and actually craft policies and create policies to justify why you, A, kept Trump on the platform when he repeatedly broke your rules, and then B, finally decided to boot him off. Because right now, what we're looking at is arbitrary. And I think that was really difficult for Facebook because they know that it was. Why did they sidle up to Trump so much? It depends who you ask. I think if you ask, uh, you know, the the PR line is going to be that, you know, Trump is a public figure and that it's important for the public discourse to hear what Trump has to say. And we're a neutral platform, which has to give everyone a voice. I think that there are people within the company who admit that also it was good politics and Mm -hmm. it was good business. Trump had almost 30 million followers by the time he was booted off Facebook. There were people who went to Facebook multiple times a day and joined Facebook and joined groups because they liked Trump and they wanted to be there for him. And it was great keeping Facebook in the news. It was great to not have to deal with pressure from, you know, Trump tweeting out, ban Facebook, and I'm going right, to... Like boot. what they did with, uh, with Amazon. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It hasn't hurt any of them, by the way. It hasn't, but Facebook didn't want into that fracas. What, what do you think? I think... I think a lot of this started with this thing called trending topics in 2016 when there was a Gizmodo story that landed that showed that there was um, bias or at least alleged anti-conservative bias in what was then known as sort of this curated list of stories that Facebook would put out. Um, Facebook internally was completely frightened and about the reaction to this because a lot of conservatives pointed to that as evidence that, that they're still out there. Exactly. And they could see that that would snowball 
that this sort of claim of anti-conservative bias would snowball. And it has, as you know, right now in Washington, yeah. whether even though it's completely debunked, the idea of anti-conservative bias and censoring and shadow banning or whatever you call it. But they knew that this would be a political force, that that would be a huge problem for them. And so that's why you have people in Congress right now running on this plank, this plank that big tech is censoring us. I don't know if they saw that far out that that would happen, but it was for the first time, it was a complete terrifying new t- new environment for them to have political pressure. Because remember, before that, during the Obama administration, Facebook was a darling, mm-hmm. as well as a lot of big tech companies. So it was a complete shock for them. The, the irony here, and we've all written about this so much, is that Facebook keeps bending over backwards to mm-hmm. appease conservatives and to not look as though they have any kind of liberal bias. Mm-hmm. We documented in the book and in New York Times reporting how just before the elections, when they banned militia groups, when they banned people on the far right and QAnon, Joel Kaplan and his policy team sent sent the group back and said, you've got to also ban Antifa. We mm-hmm. can't ban one without the other. Otherwise, right. the conservatives will jump on it. And the Facebook team is sitting there scratching their heads and saying, great, now we've got to go find some Antifa groups we can also ban and drag right. this out for another couple of weeks just so that we can look even handed. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Scott, we have a couple more questions. Yeah, just I think I've come around to more Kara's point of view. I look at I 100% agree with you. Mark Zuckerberg's in control. From a governance standpoint, he has the voting shares. And really thoughtful people come on this board with tremendous gravitas and character that we keep hoping are going to uh, help, you know, level up Mark's character. And within several months or early, they all leave. Um, So it, it seems to me you brought up Trump that, and I'm curious again, if you saw evidence of this or evidence against it, that Mark Zuckerberg, like Trump, is outstanding at sort of sucking the life life force and reputation out of people, using them as his heat shield. And then when they're no longer an effective heat shield, you know, they leave. My sense is he's very Trumpian, very good at throwing other people to the wolves. Your thoughts? You know, it's interesting. Um, Mark Zuckerberg always wanted to be a historical figure. He was, mm-hmm. as we've, you know, people have talked about his Augustus. fascination. Yeah, Augustus, exactly. Augustus Caesar. For those who don't know, he loves Augustus Caesar. But, I mean, if I was going to pick an emperor, I suppose that's the one I would pick. But go ahead. <laughs> but how scary. Maximus Carasus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he sees himself as needing a place in history, wanting a place in history. And if that's your point of view, if that's your jumping off point, mm-hmm. what is a little human sacrifice? Oh, dear. She just answered your question, I believe. Boom. Boom. Go ahead. I think Shira answered it well. That's a good one. All right. So I'm going to ask, I have two more questions. One is going forward, what is, you know, there's a consumer part, there's a stock part that's never done better, right? It's doing really well. It dominates, it dominates. Where is it now, Cecilia, like you to start in Washington, and then I'd love you to talk about product and technology and security because we're, you know, getting hit with ransomware attacks. So first start with the regulatory environment right now. Obviously in China, they've just decided to go all like they're they're just going up to 10 cent today yeah they're mm-hmm. 10 cent is where they went today um and bite dance um so what is, hmm. what is going to happen here um what is going to happen here and what is the strength of the i guess the opposite the, the you know the opposition to facebook at least the regulatory opposition you have lena khan you've got tim Wu, you've got this executive order give us like a little sense of where it's going to go yeah. and how it's going to affect them so I mean, I've been covering this for a long time, regulatory policy, and I've never seen the kind of energy that I've seen right now, that I'm seeing right now in Washington. There is so much interest in regulating and reining in Facebook and big tech. That said, 
we are seeing the limits of laws right now. We're seeing the limits of how far enforcement actually could go with the court recently throwing out the Federal Trade Commissions mm-hmm. and the the lawsuit also by more than 40 state attorneys general recently to try to break up Facebook. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's going to take some time. There's a lot of energy. I think Biden administration's pick of Lena Khan to run the FTC and already the action she's taken place. She's trying to actually create regulations in some ways at the FTC. Um, and you're seeing a whole suite of antitrust bills going through Congress and passing. Like They're really tough. I think in two years ago, one year ago even, they wouldn't have passed. There's a lot of energy. But Okay, this is where my, you know, like covering Washington for so long has gotten to me. Like it's I feel like it could take a really long time and it's hard for me to get mm-hmm. too excited about it. I think mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of other action for other tech companies as well, mm-hmm. but definitely I think you're going to see the FTC they're not going to roll over after that court decision. They're going to refile. Mm-hmm. I imagine. I mean, yeah. how could they not? And um so there's a lot of energy. I think that they're figuring out what actually how to execute that and the nuts and bolts of that are, is really the question going forward. What about you from a product? And, you know, look, stock is, yeah, all the text companies have done very well in the pandemic. What what do you imagine is going to happen from a product and technology point of view for this? Because, you know, I, I wrote a book on AOL. It was that it was a, a ascendant and then it was not. Is that what happens here? I think they actually, it's very hard to get them out of ascendancy at this yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, but, I think... You know, I think that's what scares Mark Zuckerberg more than anything else, that he's not the hot new it boy anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen them he try never to— was, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he's always, whenever I used to go see him, I go, that MySpace guy is handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I meant hot in a different way, but um, no, I, I think that, um, you know, he— I feel triggered. I'm sorry, go ahead. HR. Um, I— I think Mark is terrified of TikTok. I mean, yeah. we've seen Instagram obviously try yeah. to clone TikTok. I would say it doesn't seem to have worked. Mm-hmm. I don't know many people that are using the Instagram version of TikTok. Mm-hmm. We're seeing him look at other companies on the horizon and realize that he's not able to put his finger on the pulse the way he once was. Mm-hmm. And he can't make those big acquisitions, perhaps, the way he once did. And that's incredibly threatening for him. That being said, in much of the rest of the world, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, hugely dominant, hugely yes, successful. Globally. Right. And so he knows he can rely on that. He knows he can rely on being first, on being global. It's like Microsoft. It's a Microsoftian kind of attitude. Right. And does it become as boring as Microsoft is at some point? Mm -hmm. But the most valuable company in the world is Microsoft and Apple, you know, I mean, or Amazon and Apple. So it's an interesting thing. So what do you what do you imagine is next, each of you? And then Scott, I'll ask a final question. I think, well, on the personal level, it'd be really interesting to see what happens with executive leadership. I can imagine Mark Zuckerberg wanting to continue to stay in the, at the helm of the company and to introduce new technologies for, and he's very competitive and he wants to stay ahead. So not pull a Bezos. He, but he could, he also is, he really admires Bill Gates. And I think he's really interested in the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and taking more role in that. So we can see that as well. I think there's a lot of questions as to, I mean, look, when you think about the future of Facebook, there are some things that are so core, that are so part of its DNA. One of it is the structure and Mark Zuckerberg's leadership. And the other is how the technology functions and how it surfaces emotive and engagement um, and prioritizes engagement in the newsfeed. Until some of these core things change, I can't see the trajectory really changing at all mm-hmm. at the company. Yeah, I find them very uninnovative. I mean, you just saw the executive who left for Insta, Instacart, who is really interesting. There's a lot of interesting—a lot of people are leaving. It's a very Google-like situation that happened to them, too. Tell What do you think? 
you know, I think, um, as we show in our book, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg have drifted apart, and her relevancy and importance in the company has been called into question. Um, I'm curious to ha- see what happens next for her, and I'm curious to see what happens next in terms of who who ascends to be the next Mark at some point. Anyone? Name, give me a name. Um, you know, Chris Cox probably came back for a reason. Mm. I can't imagine that that wasn't part of the discussions with Chris Cox when he decided to return yeah. to the company. Hamlet. So Hamlet's going to take over. <laughs> I once had Scott a, a coffee with him. That literally, he's like, I feel bad and yet good. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, people, people see him as this. They call him the moral compass of the yeah. of the company. I would point out that that while he is certainly very thoughtful about these things, many of the problems happened under that his watch. Correct. He was yeah. the Thank head you. of Newsfeed when Newsfeed made. Love you, Chris. Right. He. He made those decisions. His own employees, we have this in the book, were coming to him and they were saying, what's going on with Newsfeed? Why is all this crazy stuff about Hillary Clinton being in a secret coma? Like, what, mm-hmm. why is this at the top of Newsfeed? And he kind of patted on the back and did that Facebook thing of, I hear you. I hear you. I yeah. hear what you're saying. I'm sure that made the employee feel really great, but it didn't change anything when it came to American democracy. All right. Last question. Scott. Moral compass. That's a pretty fucking rusty compass. Um, <laughs> look, <laughs> the... <laughs> Well, let me ask you this. The Biden administration called you and said, the two of you are thoughtful people. You've seen a lot of companies. You know this one as well as any outsider right now, at least for a moment. What should we do? Is it regulation? Does, do things not change unless management leaves? Uh, is, it, is it severe you know, punishment? What, magic wand, what would you do to make Facebook a healthier part of our um, ecosystem? I would it's- I would say your problem is not Facebook. Your problem is social media. Your problem Hmm. is that Americans don't know how to use the Internet, despite probably we should be better than any other country. We should be able to teach our kids media literacy. We should be able to teach Mm -hmm. Americans how to find Mm -hmm. valid sources of information online. We're not doing that. There are countries all over the world, including Singapore, Estonia, that are doubling down and saying our democracy is going to break down unless we start teaching people media literacy. America's not doing any of that. And I would tell the Biden. Right. And I would tell the Biden administration, this is not a Facebook problem. This is a problem that is going to persist. It's going to get worse. Deep fakes and AI are going to make it worse for all of us. Mm -hmm. And unless you do something now, where does democracy sit in 20 years, 30 years time? I can tell you what the Biden administration is telling themselves, actually, which is Mm -hmm. that we've done a lousy job as a federal government of enforcing our own laws. And there are so many examples of violations from Facebook and other companies. But let's just stick on Facebook for a second. They say that, you know, the privacy settlement of 2019 was so long overdue. There are so many other examples of violations. I mean, this is what I'm hearing from people in Washington is that there needs to actually be a real cop on the beat. I mean, they've Mm -hmm. the, the federal government allowed more than a thousand mergers by big tech companies over the last decade, Mm -hmm. and they never challenged any of them. So I think that what I'm hearing from them themselves is that we actually have to be bolder. I'm sorry, I have one more last question. Joel Kaplan, will he stay? Yeah, Cecilia. he's it's curious. This I mean, is the guy who's who who did a lot of the Trump uh, yeah uh, petting. I would say from everything we know. He is absolutely in Mark's inner circle, and Cheryl absolutely trusts him. And remember, Cheryl brought him in, and mm. Mark has brought him into his circle. So he is incredibly He's powerful. Still powerful. He's Post incredibly Trump. powerful post-Trump as well, even with the Democratic administration. I think people really value, especially Mark, his political instincts. Mm-hmm. He apparently gets along really well with newcomers like Nick Clegg. So as far as whether he wants to stay, I don't know. 
whether he is endangered of leaving, of being so kicked out, no way. Hurt him. No, okay. no. All right. Okay. Well, this is a great book. Everybody should read it. Uh, they're going to be all over the media, but you should read the book anyway. It's called the uh, An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. Shira, Cecilia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. All right, Scott, one more quick break. That was fascinating. Didn't you find them fascinating? They're fascinating I ladies. did. They're thoughtful, yes. thoughtful, interesting people. I got the sense you're all good friends. By the way, you're having a book party without me. No, I Did you purposely you. do it while I'm in Iceland? <laughs> yes, okay, all right. So let's get, we'll, we'll be back with wins and fails. Okay, Scott, wins and fails. I'm going to start by being first, but fail. Once again, there's a great story in the New York Times today about how much uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch, that Uncle Satan, that toxic man, is doing stuff around anti-vax hmm. stuff about this door-to-door stuff. They continue to, to double down on ruining this country. I don't know what else to say. Like just and and it's a great story about this about what they've been doing. They did the same thing at the beginning of COVID, now they're doing it at the end. This group of people just really, I don't know how they wake I, I know how they go to sleep at night. They have no soul. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. That's my fail. Uh, well, I mentioned it, so I'll start with my fail. My fail is uh, I think I, I do think this quote-unquote billionaire space race diminishes the bravery of uh, people like Yuri Gagarin mm-hmm. uh, and um uh, and Alan Shepard in the in the Apollo programs. I also think it diminishes. There's. Do you realize that in the space station to keep six people alive, there was this incredible tweet storm from a woman. Oh God, we'll look up next time. Just talking about um, how basically space wants to kill you. Yes, yes, that but was basically yes, it was one of the people up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think her first name's Jen. Anyways, but for six people in the space station, it takes a thousand people on the ground to yeah. keep them alive. And when you think about what what we accomplished and what other nations accomplished and the risks that people took fifty or sixty years ago, and now we have a billionaire show, billionaire showing up and saying, "Hey, watch me!" <laughs> I just find it just again strikes me of our priorities seem to be all uh, all fucked up. Yes. My win is What's your win? my win is again uh, we we adore and uh, uh, there's this incredible idolatry of American universities, American athletes, American companies. But there isn't enough respect afforded to our government and our public servants. And my win, and this fits in with your uh, last round uh, vaccine uh, vaccine hesitation, is Jen Psaki. Is that how you Psaki, name it? Psaki, yes. Jen, Jen Psaki. Psaki. And yeah. here's a woman. Uh, okay, so uh, parents, uh, Polish and Greek immigrants, or I'm sorry, Polish and Greek descent. I don't know if, the, if, she's, first, if she's second generation. She's a competitive swimmer at William & Mary. And she decides to go to work in the government. At the age of 31, she's a deputy press secretary for the Obama administration. And then 10 years later, she's the press secretary. And I think she perfectly, perfectly summarizes the code for someone in her job. And that is she is forceful yet dignified. And what I'd like to do mm-hmm. is I'd like to play a clip where she responds to a question about their attempts to educate people around vaccine hesitancy in South Carolina. The failure to provide accurate public health information, including the efficacy of vaccines and the accessibility of them uh, to people across the country, including South Carolina, is literally killing people. So maybe they should consider that. Okay, so I find I find it just heartening that mm-hmm. such an impressive people we talked about, Professor Wu, uh, but Jen Psaki, I just I, I hear her and I think I contrast that with four years ago, Sean Spicer. Oh, God. Yeah, that guy. And I'm like, my God, it, America, 
America has some of the most talented people in the world who want to do something who realize that greatness is in the agency of others, and they decide to join the best, the most impressive, noble organization in the world, and that is the U.S. government. So my win is Jen Psaki. I think she's nice. fantastic, and I think this government. Uh, I think there are a lot of heroes here. She's good. Uh, she's good. She's good. She's 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 anyway. She's, she's my fantastic. Win. That's good. My, she's win, my win. I'm going to give a win. Is I I, I I go between, you know, this recent thing where Nicole Hannah Jones was going to go to UNC and then they wouldn't give her tenure and then they did mm-hmm. and then she went off to Howard University uh, with mm-hmm. with a donation which is in part by tech people I think and and mm-hmm. some others, um, and also Ta-Nehisi Coast is going there too. Um, I would say Wayne Frederick who we've talked to, who is the mm-hmm. head of Howard. I think yeah. I, I'm hoping to interview him soon on Sway. At some point, we've interviewed him on Pivot. Um, I think what he's doing there at Howard is really, you know, another another doctor who we talked to him about uh, COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think I, I love what he's doing there. I think what a win this week to get those two there to teach those students. And uh, I just wish him all the best. I think that was really a great win for them um, to get these people to teach their wonderful students there. So I would give them a win. Okay, Scott, that's the show. Uh, We'll be back Friday for more. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your question for the Pivot podcast. The link is also in our show notes. Scott, enjoy Iceland. I will see you soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. So today's episode was produced by Caroline Shagrin. Ernie Andertod engineered this episode. Thanks also to Whitney Jones and Drew Burrows. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or frankly, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked our show, please recommend it to a friend. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. A big shout out. Congratulations to Tim, Team Italy and also thank you Team England for bringing bringing uh, England together. That was such a wonderful tournament. You have so much to be proud of. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Whether you're exploring space, making pizza, or producing a podcast like this one here, chances are your team is marching into the AI-generated horizon. Atlassian Intelligence is unleashing a new era of teamwork. You can use Atlassian's AI-powered products for everything from brainstorming ideas to finding information to summarizing huge documents, all by using normal, everyday language. Atlassian AI-powered software like Jira and Confluence help teams accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how you can transform teamwork with the power of AI at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.